Welcome to the Dr. Mundial podcast. I couldn't be more excited uh, than to have Dr. Uzma Syed here, who's an ID professional on the front lines of this COVID outbreak. Uh, she practices on Long Island and basically is uh, running the task force for the Catholic health system out here, which covers a bunch of hospitals. And, you know, with all of this insanity that's going on, and especially in New York, where I think we're literally on the forefront of what's going on with, with the coronavirus uh, pandemic, um, I'm excited to have you here to actually shed some light about what it's like on the front lines, you know, what you guys are facing. Um, and uh, I just really thank you for taking this bit of time out to speak with us because I know your head must be spinning with the amount of phone calls. I know you were on a bunch of conference calls even before we got onto this podcast. So, uh, yeah. Dr. Syed, thank you so much for joining us. And you know, I really appreciate you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything that you're doing for all of us in the community. Absolutely. It's my pleasure me i think it's really important to get the relevant information out there and i'm more than happy to help and get as much information out as possible awesome well let's just start with like i guess some facts um how many cases are in nassau county right now i know there's over what 16 over 16,000 or 17,000 in new york area right now or in new york yeah new york has so as of last night i'll give you the stats and you know because we are in uh basically the hotspot uh, in the country. And we have, which, you know, we're not surprised by that at all, uh, given the number of people that we have densely populated in New York City itself. But, um, you know, we knew that our numbers were gonna go up and because of underreporting throughout the nation, um, we are anticipating even more cases. So, you know, the numbers that we have right now are really an underestimate of what we're, uh, you know, what we actually have. Uh, but as the testing ability has, you know, become more prevalent, that's why we're seeing more numbers. And as people are, in fact, getting more sick from this. So in, in New York City itself, we had, you know, as of last night, 6,211 cases. Nassau had 1234. Suffolk had 662. But, you know, overall in New York was over 10,000. This was last night. And these numbers keep changing, you know, by the minute, by the hour, by the day. You know, if you look at throughout the country, um, over 38,000 cases, you know, and growing, uh, you know, it's rapidly evolving, right. you know. We have over 321,000 cases, you know. I mean, today is Sunday, and these are the stats from yes. Saturday. Night. I think honestly, it's like 17,000 cases now. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It is. It is. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's it's growing by the minute, and you know we're not surprised by any of that at all. We're seeing it in the hospitals. We're seeing um, you know the surge is already starting. Um, you know started from uh, as you know New Rochelle, New York City, Queens, and it's you know moving outward. So Nassau County and then Suffolk, and you're going to see more and more numbers. Um, wow. Um, you know I I think one of the things that's important to clarify for a lot of people because you know the media has really taken a hold on this and mm -hmm. it's creating like you know I mean obviously folks should be very concerned and alarmed, but the numbers sometimes are very hard for like a, a non-medical person to really decipher. They sound terrifying, like, you know, cases doubled overnight. You know, what, what's happening is the, the detection, identification of cases has doubled overnight. Those are people that have already had it or have it, but they're being tested now. Now we actually know the number because testing is available. Um, can you just talk about that for maybe a second? Yeah, so I think that's really important. We were seeing this globally uh, because obviously testing was really rampant in other nations and other countries where we were sort of a little bit, you know, um, held back because of many different 
reasonability or an issue with the actual testing kit. And then, you know, now having it at state levels and even at local laboratories. So we have now more testing that's readily available. And the more that you're going to test, the more that you're going to find that there are cases. So, and we do want that because we want that denominator um, for us eventually from a, you know, from an epidemiologic standpoint, we have to know eventually the data and the statistics and, you know, look at how many people are actually affected and what was the actual outcome. So you need that, not just a numerator, but the denominator. So we really need to have an accurate assessment of how many people are actually affected. um, And that's going to continue to grow, as I said. And now that we are able to test so many more people in the community, um, and again, testing everybody and all these positive cases, it's a wide spectrum of illness, right? So a lot of people have mild symptoms and are at home and are recovering. Have a good number of people that are very ill that do need to be hospitalized, but just generally being positive doesn't necessarily mean that all these people are in the hospitals right now. So can, can you talk about the spectrum of symptoms? Because I think that's also something that's like very confusing. I mean, I can tell you, I myself alone thought I thought I you know had Corona like a million times this weekend. You know? um, just because you're like, well, you get short of breath, like oh my god, is this an anxiety attack or am I, or right. do I actually have symptoms? Right, right. You know, I think no, so absolutely. Yeah. So maybe yeah, just absolutely. Skin, yeah. So, you know, the thing that's unique about this, you know, we know it's a novel strain of uh, this respiratory viruses that have been around for many, many, many years, very common uh, as a respiratory illness this time of year. It's just that this is a different strain of that virus that we have never, ever seen before. Um, and it's been named SARS-CoV-2. And the illness that this virus cause, causes is has been named COVID-19. So the thing that's very unique about this virus is there's a large spectrum of symptoms that you can have. Um, and that's what makes it a little bit challenging because people can have, you know, just a very mild, you know, low-grade temperature or just feeling run down um, and not think anything of it, you know. And then you can have somebody on the other end who's got really high fevers, really trouble, a lot of trouble breathing. And, you know, so you've got the two extremes of scenarios. But for the most part, the most common symptoms that are present in patients with COVID-19 are fever and cough, and it's mostly a dry cough. Um, And so that's the most common things you see. And then that's preceded by then shortness of breath. So if these symptoms are ongoing, Um, and worsening in 24, 48 hours, then you should, you know, potentially suspect that this is an ongoing, you know, pandemic and and epidemic in our country as well. So then, you know, you should think about reaching out to your medical provider um, to get guidance about whether or not you need to be evaluated or tested and so forth. But, you know, some other less common symptoms, um, people can have headaches, you know, can be mild, can be, you know, more severe prior to um, fevers. People can have nausea. It's, uh, you know, we do hear oftentimes people have a, a, a little bit of nausea before they have their fevers. Of this um, out of China initially as well, but it's again more of a rare presentation. More commonly, is still the fever, the cough, and the shortness of breath. Um, and then you have some very atypical, you know, uh, symptoms that can be present. But those are all again very rare presentations. The common ones are always going to be the most common is the fever, the cough, and the shortness of breath. Wow, okay, that's that's really good for people to know. Um, you know, I was watching Governor Cuomo's uh, press conference this morning, and he, and one of the things that he said, which was, you know, I think terrifying for a lot of folks, is that 40 to 80 percent of New Yorkers can expect to get the coronavirus uh, mm-hmm. over the course of the next few months, and he's, I think he said over the course of the next four to six months. Can you speak to that? Because you know, I think that scares a lot of folks that are out there. Because really, yeah. what we're seeing, I'm, really, what you hear about are the most terrifying cases and like the, you know, the most horrible stories, that's what's disseminated on social media, by the media. Right. And, you know, right. it 
it really skews the information that people are hearing. And again, it really scares people, you know. And you know, and, and not to blame the media, but there's been a lot of, you know, it's a it's a very exciting topic. And you know, of course, it's sensationalized somewhat to really bring the most extreme cases to light, you know. But if 40 to 80 percent of people are gonna, may potentially get this, like, what does that mean? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that. Um, so from the beginning, since I've been uh, educating people about, you know, COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, I've always sort of had that little bit of notion in there to, you know, let's not panic, uh, let's not incite fear, but let's act cautiously because, you know, if you start panicking, you're really not going to have good outcome, you know, so we have to really focus on what we have to deal with and how we can handle the situation as best as possible. So it is definitely, you know, it looks like the case that most people will be exposed and will have this illness. Again, because it's a novel virus, we've never been exposed, but the issue is that because there's so much community spread and we know that there's so much transmission because people sometimes don't even have any symptoms, right? So we know that the spectrum of the illness is you can have no symptoms at all and still be transmitting the virus, which is why it becomes so difficult to contain, which is why it is essentially a global pandemic. Um, or you can have symptoms, you know, where it potentially could have been contained. So when you have this big spectrum and we know there's so much community spread, um, it's bound to be the case where so many people will be affected by it and, you know, have the virus and be exposed to it and have infection. Infection. What we have to remember is that majority of cases will recover from this. Um, you know, out of 321,943 cases reported last night globally, um, there were 13,000 deaths. That means the rest of those were all people that recovered. So I think that's, you know, that's something as we get more and more cases, as we get more data, even within our country, we'll know the number of cases that have actually recovered from this. And again, from also people that have not had any symptoms. So we have to remember that those are potentially in that bucket of people that have been exposed that had the virus. And then remember that there's a spectrum of illness and majority of people that are young and healthy, we're saying still should recover and should do just fine from this. The people who have underlying medical conditions, whose immune system is suppressed, um, they are most at risk in addition to the elderly, you know, as their age increases in the 70s and 80s these people have the most risk of having the worst outcome. And those are the ones that you are gonna see in the hospital and you are gonna see in the ICUs and they, that may not do well. Um, so, you know, everything is essentially lumped together, but we have to know that the majority of people, globally it's already happening. And also within our nation, majority of people are going to recover from this, but we are gonna have exposure essentially to everybody, um, not everybody, but a good uh, uh, percentage of our population. But we have to remember that you know what we're doing now in our nation as as a nation as a community we're trying to mitigate this as much as possible and you know flatten that curve and really with the social distancing we're hoping that the burden is not so much on the people who potentially cannot recover from this right so just so people understand like flattening yeah. the curve basically yeah. means you're really trying to reduce the burden on the healthcare system you're trying to really preserve those ICU beds and patients who need ventilators um, because if everyone were to all get this at the same time, then there are not going to be enough hospital beds for someone's grandmother or someone, you know's family member who is you know really compromised from this. So we're really exactly. limit exactly exposure to the most vulnerable elements of our population, right. Right. So that's something that I've been uh, speaking about a lot um, in the past several weeks about flattening the curve. And really, what that means is, down and stretch it out over a time frame as long as we possibly can because we want 
try to and with the social distancing, we know that the less exposure there is between people, the slower it is and the harder it is for the virus to keep, you know, communicating from and going from one person to the next. So that's what we want to do, slow it down. Just because it's a burden is going to be overwhelming on the hospitals, which we already know. Um, but also, uh, you know, that people that are young and healthy are still getting sick from this and some sick enough where they can and the that person even being in the hospital, then that's more people that are getting exposed. So, you know, the best we can do to prevent this um, is what we're doing right now with what's called mitigation. So social distancing is really at the forefront right now. So it's really up to all of us as a community to come together, um, not panic, not have fear, but turn this, you know, get some good out of this for all of humanity and for all of us as a nation. Right. It's kind of like what you don't do really plays the biggest role here. Absolutely. But I mean, as as a healthcare provider, I mean, you know, you're Absolutely. much more on the front lines than I am. But, you know, even I'm still seeing urgent visits in my office, you know, for folks that, you know, have like someone who's pregnant and has a rash to keep them out of an urgent care where they can potentially be exposed to this virus. You know, they're much safer coming to my office where I have, you know, control and there's very limited amount of people that are coming in there now. Um, but it's still, you know, like, you know, I'm at putting myself at risk, you're really putting yourself at risk. And all the doctors who are in the hospitals and nurses and, and you know, all the hospital staff. I mean, I, I have to imagine that, you know, in Spain, for instance, I think it was like some crazy number, like, you know, thousands of doctors and nurses and folks working in hospitals have already been exposed and tested positive. I mean, it's scary. You know, like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, you know, we have a limit on personal protective equipment, you know, masks are at a shortage. You know, there was even like, you know, I mean, this is the United States of America. Folks should wear a bandana when they go to the hospital, like doctors. I and mean, that's crazy to me. You know, what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah. So, you know, it's um, really interesting, you know, um, unusual times that we're in, unusual circumstances that we're in. And it really feels like battle. And it feels like, you know, we're essentially in a war um, with this novel virus that we've never been exposed to. Um, and we are, the healthcare workers are the front lines. Um, and we're seeing it firsthand. I mean, I'm in the thick of it, in the middle of all of this. And um, there's a lot of anxiety. You know, there's a lot of anxiety within healthcare at every level uh, from, you know, the ER physicians, from the EMTs to the ER physicians, ER nurses, um, aides, you know, from the medical floors where these, uh, you know, patients might be taken care of, from the ICUs, the anesthesiologists, at every level, you know, there's a level of anxiety because of the unknown, because of what we have to deal with. Um, and that same anxiety translates into the community um, as well. Um, but I think as healthcare professionals, you know, we've all taken an oath to take care of our patients um, uh, no matter what is possible to do this. Um, it's really, you know, unfortunate that we are in a situation um, as a nation where we have limited supplies of personal protective equipment. Um, and that's referring to the gowns that we need, the masks that we need. Uh, we need special eyewear. We need gloves. You know, these basic things um, that we would never, ever think being in the United States that we would have a shortage of. We're in an un usual situation where, you know, so many people in our country um, are being affected by this and are going to continue to be affected. And we have a huge surge in New York already. You can see that that's this part of the country that's being hit the most right now. And the numbers are going to continue to rise. And there's a lot of facilities that are already feeling, uh, they're feeling the burn right now. 
few days to maybe a week left of this personal protective equipment, and we're just entering essentially the eye of the storm. Um, so it's, you know, it's really, there is anxiety and it is concerning, but we just, you know, all of us in the healthcare industry are just trying to work together as best as possible to come up with the best solutions. Um, you know, we're, we're officials um, at every level, you know, national level, state level, um, to get us this equipment, you know, at this protective equipment as, as soon as possible, because we all need to be healthy as well to take care of, you know, our patients that need us. Um, so it, it affects everyone at every level. And this is part of the mitigation uh, process that I was talking about before as well, that if we start getting sick, then, you know, it's our family members that are exposed and then they start getting sick. And so again, it's this vicious cycle where people are constantly coming to the hospital and then we run out of beds and we run out of, you know, ways to treat them. Um, so we have to try to, you know, mitigate this um, as much as possible. And the, the sooner that we can have more, you know, gowns and gloves and masks for our healthcare workers, the better scenario that we're all in. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. And hopefully, you know, those initiatives are already put into place. And it sounds like they are, but, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I was not to get politics uh, into this conversation, but, you know, this, we saw this wave coming months ago. And, you know, for me, it's somewhat like disappointing that we're scrambling now on the front lines for equipment that we knew we were going to need a couple of months ago. You know, so it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. And you yeah, know, I really yeah. feel for all my colleagues like yourself who are in the hospitals, like on the front lines and now like scrambling to protect themselves. Because like you're saying, no, you're there and it's not you. You go home, you have a family, you know, and, you know, it, it, it puts your family at risk, you know, the lack of this uh, equipment that you need. You know, it's exactly. like you're a soldier yeah. to work without a gun, you know, like on the front line. Yeah. Right. And it's also even in the healthcare um, setting. So we want to try to uh, prevent the spread within the healthcare industry as well. So if there's a healthcare worker that's, you know, going to get sick with the, this illness, again, like I mentioned before, because of the spectrum of illness, they may not be showing any symptoms and then spreading it to other people, you know, in the hospital. So we, that, that's what we want to try to prevent. And so the more equipped we are, we can handle this situation. Yeah, that's, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. So what are like, uh, you know, like what is going on like at the hospital, like, you know, where you're at right now? Like I know some of the hospitals have set up tents outside of the emergency room to keep, you know, potential COVID patients, you know, sort of sequestered, not to bring it into the hospital. Um, is that something you're seeing out here on the hospitals in Long Island? Absolutely. So um, as I mentioned before, as a leader of the task force, um, in uh, the hospitals in Long Island. I've been uh, planning this with, you know, the administration and um, the leaders in multiple different departments um, throughout the health system to really have a plan. Again, um, and so we do have tents in places um, as an extension of the fresh patients accordingly that come in with these like respiratory symptoms. So anybody who has potential, you know, a fever or cough would be taken into this tented area, which is well ventilated and everything um, to be triaged appropriately and then decided if they need to stay in the hospital and then we can figure out where they need to go in the hospital um, uh, specifically or if they can go home. But the idea is to really limit them, uh, their exposure, um, you know, their interaction with the regular emergency room where all the other patients might be because we have to remember okay we're dealing with COVID-19 pandemic right now and you know in the U.S. but hospitals are still full with patients with a myriad of other diseases and illnesses 
um, that, you know, they're coming to the hospital for, whether it's a stroke or a heart attack, you know, um, anything else, you know, their appendix, whatever it may be, you know, there's a whole bunch of other patients that are not affected by COVID um, that we don't want to unnecessarily expose, you know, this new illness on top of what they're dealing with. So that's the first part of sort of segregating that. Um, and then after that, there's a whole plan of in place of how we have designated areas where we can take care of patients with this illness so that we can their acuity. So there's medical floors that we've designated in the hospital where uh, patients are uh, being um, treated for this illness, aims in place. Um, so it's a whole system in place to make sure that we are doing as much as we can to protect, you know, the patients, other patients, healthcare workers, um, and then obviously as as uh, their acuity gets more, then they can be moved to the where intensive care units are these people going to be and we have a whole plan in place for once we fill up one area then we go to a different area um, but there's a lot of planning and a lot of logistics and that's already been put into place in anticipation of what we're dealing with right now well I, that's everything you just said is so reassuring for i think for folks to know <laughs> that there are folks that are really planning for this and planning for what may be coming weeks ahead because it sounds like you guys are really i mean incredibly on top of it which is really good to hear um, I guess just a little sort of in closing, you know, I think a lot of people are viewing this situation with a mindset of scarcity. Like, uh, am I going to be able to get food? Am I going to get be able to get toilet paper? You know, which seems so crazy to me. Um, but that was such a priority. But one of the things that we're seeing is at, with just some of the reports, even with what President Trump is saying with Plaquenil and azithromycin, there's already like a total shortage of this stuff in the local pharmacies because I think everyone is asking their docs, hey, can you send this stuff in for me? Can you send this stuff in for me? Well, there's no real studies that show that, yes, there are a few case reports that, yeah, you know, this combination has helped some patients. But of course, like, instead of having a, a mindset of abundance that, you know, this is, you know, we will have everything that we need should people need it, folks are really kind of scrambling and hoarding, you know, these, these supplies. Um, can you, two things, one, just speak to the general mindset, yeah. but also if you can yeah. talk about Plaquenil and azithromycin yeah. as a treatment for yeah. COVID. I mean, you know, so we're talking about a malaria drug and an antibiotic being used right. in combination to treat a virus. So right. maybe we could talk about that. So, one. yep, absolutely. So I'm glad you brought this up. It's a really, you know, hot topic right now. And I think there's a lot of information floating out there. Um, and I think we have to sort of um, address it, sort of address the elephant in the room. So similar to what we saw happening at the beginning um, of this, you know, uh, pandemic where people were going out and buying masks and buying gloves, Need it because we've already discussed um, many times that you know masks are not necessarily protective for the general community to not contract the virus because it's really hand washing because you know you could still get the droplets if you're too close to somebody's don't touch your face. Care industries we have a shortage of masks. Same thing is happening with the medications. And very quickly, I mean, this happened in like the last 48 hours or so. Um, so people that actually need these medications on a regular basis may not have access to it. What we have to remember is that 
COVID. Um, so that's something that we have to remember that there's not enough data. There's clinical trials that are ongoing with different types of medications. Um, and they have to look at, you know, in a controlled environment, you know, there's a clinical trial going on with NIH and um, Nebraska Medical Center looking at remdesivir, which is a nucleoside analog. Again, looking at, the, looking at if this medication is very good or effective for treating patients with COVID-19. And it's, you know, in a controlled environment. And there's a lot of different things that have to be looked at to really say that a medication is safe to use for a particular illness. Um, so even though that trial is ongoing, they still are not coming out and they're not going to be able to come out and say that this is the drug of choice for this illness. Again, we're dealing with, you know, a limited amount of data. We're dealing with limited amount of time and, you know, things are moving rather quickly. Same thing can apply to hydroxychloroquine and zithromycin. Both of these drugs have been approved for use by the FDA for different, completely different medical conditions. Neither have ever been approved for use in COVID-19 because we don't have enough data. There are lots of studies that are coming out throughout the world um, about case reports and smaller studies, uh, you know, in patients with all different types of treatments. You know, we, there's a whole slew of antiviral medications that have been, you know, tried in all this treatment regimen is the treatment of choice for this illness. Again, more data needs to be compiled. There's a lot of side effects of medications. People have to understand that the, none of these medications are benign, meaning that there's a lot of potential side effects that could do more harm. In medicine, we always say that you want to, you know, you want to make sure that you're doing less harm, right? Do no harm. So you have to make sure that you know what the outcome is going to be before you blind finally start what you're doing might have more negative impact. For example, there's a lot of cardiac um, you know, side effects of these medications, and you have to be very careful. And combining them together as well can lead to additional cardiac complications. There's a whole slew of, you know, not just, you know, side effects, but interactions with people, so other regular medications, and their underlying medical conditions that they have. So it's very, very complicated. Um, but I'm hearing from so many people that they're getting bombarded with phone calls from, you know, people in the community, from other people concerned, saying that, can you prescribe me these medications? Because I heard this is the treatment. I think it's really, really important for us to not have that need for what we're prescribing and what people have access to because there could be more harm than good. And we just don't simply don't have enough data um, right now to say that it's safe and that this should be the treatment of choice. Yeah, or if it works. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, well, I mean, these are wild times, and I can't thank you enough for taking time out of what you're, you must, like I said, your head must be spinning, just because you literally are on the front lines. And I, if I can say one thing, I'll say, I feel a lot better knowing that you're out there on the front lines and helping to protect us, because it really feels like, to me, you are, you have, you're setting up the infrastructure that's going to help our community deal with this pandemic, and it's great to know that there are doctors like you that are out there, you know, working on the behalf of all of us. So thank, thank you. I mean, this was, I think, going to be so helpful to so many people. I'm so glad to hear. Most welcome. It's my pleasure. All right. So we may check back in with you as this progresses. All right. Is that okay? Absolutely. Absolutely. More than right. happy to. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And stay Absolutely. safe, stay healthy, stay positive. Um, really giving you all of my good vibes and good energy to, to keep you safe through all this. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Mudgill podcast. The corresponding video can be found on YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook. Let's get it.